News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. I don't know where they come from all of a sudden, but it seems like we get these this new weather terminology and, and then you're hearing it everywhere. First, it was the atmospheric river. Now it's the bomb cyclone, because as we've heard repeatedly, our south coast here is in the middle of what they call a rare event with two bomb cyclones hitting our area in the space of four days. What does that refer to? What does it mean? Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Armel Castellan, a warning preparedness meteorologist for Environment and Climate Change Canada. Hey, thanks for being back with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Can you explain to us what a bomb cyclone actually is? Yeah, you know, <laughs> and there's several terms, weather bomb, marine bomb, and they're all kind of describing the same thing. We're talking about a, a storm out there and, you know, they get stronger and they get uh, less strong, kind of the the de-bomb as well. And that's actually currently what's happening. And when they intensify so quickly, i.e. the center low pressure part of that storm drops below 24 hectopascals or millibars in 24 hours. So it's just kind of a rate of intensification. Then we can call it a weather bomb or a bomb cyclone. I don't get too hung up on the name as long as everybody knows that it's a fairly big deal. Okay. So how often do these actually happen? Like, are these rare? Um, they happen, you know, from time to time. I'd say most coastlines in the mid-latitudes on both the northern and southern hemisphere will see, uh, you know, a weather bomb every every year, maybe a few times a year. Uh, it just so happens that when you get the setup, the pattern is there for, in this case, Western North America, and you kind of have all that energy, uh, both like the cooling of the pole, at the, uh, you know, in the early part of the fall, and then all of this tropical warmth on on you know the 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 equatorial region uh that clash is creating a jet stream that is very strong and we're just we just happen to be right at the right place kind of at the wrong time and that's why we're seeing kind of two really strong storms back to back fortunately not the worst situation since they're staying mostly offshore for us yeah that's good was that expected or did we think they were going to move a little bit inland well, it's a good question. I mean, we talk about probabilities a lot in weather forecasting. And as these were kind of, you know, coming into the crosshairs of the models and they were starting to agree more and more, there was still a lot of uncertainty. And so the first one, it looked pretty sure that it was going to stay, you know, six, seven hundred kilometers offshore of, uh, of the west coast of, of Vancouver Island and kind of cruise up and, and kind of clip high to Gwaii. So, you know, they got a pretty good uh, wind the first time around uh, last week. And then for this event, uh, it was all about where uh, the low was going to cross. Of course, as we remember from December of 2018, that storm crossed right through uh, kind of southern Vancouver Island. So it's essentially the worst case scenario because not only do you have the tightest wound um, isobars with all the strongest winds, but they're also changing directions in real in a real hurry. And that's when we have the devastation that we saw there with you know almost a million people without power. Um, and then, of course, what's super interesting about this event, because it is largely academic, you know, it's very interesting to see look, yeah. you know, historical low pressure, is that it, uh, it was filling. It's now filling. So it went from its lowest pressure, and now it's filling back up. And that's happening very quickly. So we have very strong winds today. Uh, but as the evening progresses, it's going to drop off substantially and very quickly as well. 
So what do you mean when, when you say it drops off? Does that mean like we're not, it's just going to go away? Well, it's going to fill and, and lose its intensity. And so the gradient of pressure is going to release and the winds are going to have uh, nothing really driving them anymore. So as quickly as it wound up, uh, the storm is also going to quickly wind down and the winds are going to kind of, you know, taper off very quickly as well. So, yeah, I have uh, I have high ambitions for my brother to get off the island on the ferry this evening. Oh, boy. And he was probably trusting you. If he's like, my brother, the exactly. meteorologist, can't tell me, then who can tell me, right? So, yeah, Armel, yeah. this is, is this typical for this time of year? Like, how is this fall shaping up so far? So that's a really good question. I think you, it's safe to say that we saw November in September essentially and has lasted through until yeah the first half of October again and we are uh, very much um, I mean in a very active pattern uh, you know when it comes to rain as you mentioned there's an atmospheric river associated to this storm as well it's hitting California so for them it's going to be how many burn scars are going to release with uh, copious amounts of rain uh, we we're likely to see that kind of thing again here before it's over in you know mid February when things really taper off so yeah November is our wettest month on the south coast so we have definitely a little ways to go uh, but it certainly can't stay active the way it has been uh, from beginning to end so we're going to have uh, moments of calm you know weeks of calm that that that's going to happen as well uh, but certainly we're just we're just entering into our really active uh, storm period here on the coast oh well such good news okay so then <laughs> what can we expect the next couple of days well, the next couple of days, you know, we're going to get rid of this situation, but it is it stays kind of on again, off again, wet and also dry. Wednesday is kind of our best day this week. Uh, temperatures are not going to be uh, colder than normal, actually, a couple degrees above normal, particularly on Wednesday. Um, but no enormous events on the horizon, which is nice to know. We just have a couple question marks about uh, kind of Thursday and Friday, but we will kind of tackle them today and tomorrow and make sure that we aren't looking at, again, another atmospheric river, so a huge bout of rain. But that, at this point, looks like an anomaly. Um, and so we're, yeah, we're not looking too bad. And then it looks by Saturday, things get cleared up again. All right. We'll keep our fingers crossed on that. Good luck to your brother. Thank you so much. Have a good day. <laughs> you too. That's Armel Castellan, who's the Warning Preparedness Meteorologist for Environment and Climate Change Canada, explaining to us what's going on with the weather right now. Joking about his brother. His brother's trying to catch a ferry tonight. He thinks it'll be possible because we know, as we've heard in the news, lots of ferry cancellations this morning because of the high wind. So keep it tuned in right here for the very latest. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, there's a lot of chat this morning on social media of all places about social media. Let's learn more about that with our Raji Sohal. Good morning, Raji. Good morning. Yes, Simi. Facebook's under fire again. It seems like they can't escape the fire. Yeah, you've been hearing about these uh, Facebook papers. It's this um, project yes. that represents a collaboration between a whole bunch of American news organizations. And the latest one is about that awful January 6th assault on the Capitol building in the States. And Facebook knew, uh, no surprise, I guess, that its algorithm was pushing all this false content that was making this group of aggressive people, uh, right-wingers, um, get out of control. 
and Facebook helped them reach a huge amount of people so that they could grow that group very quickly. And Frances Hogan, who um, that she's the woman who worked at Facebook, um, and she was very vocal at a Senate hearing um, several weeks ago about all of this information getting out of hand. And like, I've spent a lot of time in the States. Simi, I've lived in the States for a bit. My husband's American. So this is not hype. These aren't hypothetical scenarios. I've met these kinds of people who, you know, uh, rely on Facebook and they use it for their conspiracy theories. They share conspiracy theories there. They, uh, join like subgroups and like it's a great Facebook's a great organizing tool for them. I've and- read so many stories about this over the weekend. And really it's about what Facebook is doing in other countries too. Whereas they spend a, they spend money, some of it anyway, 81% is 80% or so of their budget of like filtering hate content is spent in the United States. But they have big problems with this in other countries like India, where they spend no money filtering hate content. Uh, they apparently agreed to censor their like posts from people in Vietnam because they wanted to keep the lucrative market of Vietnam there. But, you know, in the United States, all they talk about is free speech, free speech. They won't do that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, all they care for is profit, astronomical profit before people, before people's safety and security. Um, these revelations don't even, this is the alarming thing to me, these revelations don't seem to hurt Facebook's bottom line. Like, yes, they are tarnishing their reputation. And now pe- more people are having conversations like we are right now about how awful Facebook is. Um, but Facebook's also Instagram and it's also WhatsApp. And these are tools on social media that people use and rely on and don't seem to show, I mean, any sign of waning. Besides, we've seen numbers decline at Facebook itself. The Facebook uh, app is down, but Instagram and WhatsApp are through the roof. And that's uh, globally, Simi. It's huge. It's still so huge for people. And I, I guess really what I'm getting from reading about these Facebook papers today is that you're dealing with one person here, one person who is in charge of making all of these decisions. Maybe that's what the problem is. Absolutely. There have been calls for a long time, like we're talking years, that one person should not be in charge of that big of a company and that it should be broken up. Um, It's been, there've been calls to break it up for a long time. And also there are different regulations around this kind of stuff um, in different countries. So in the UK, WhatsApp, for example, is not allowed to operate in the same way it does in the States. Uh, There's so many more checks and balances in the UK on privacy that actually we don't have in Canada even, um, which I would love to see change. Uh, But that change is not going to come unless um, our lawmakers take all this stuff seriously. For for way too long, Hmm. our lawmakers in Canada have been like, oh, social media, you know, oh, it's not a big deal. Facebook is, Facebook is a big deal. Facebook is practically at this point everything, isn't it? It I mean, is. Like Facebook, Instagram, but, and WhatsApp. Roger, let me ask you, though, has any of this, any of these stories in the news actually changed anything about how you use social media? 100%. Has yeah. it? I, oh, I got off WhatsApp. I got off WhatsApp, and that was really hard because that's like where all the Soul Halls talk. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh. It doesn't matter where you live. That's where we that's where we chat and they're still on it constantly. So it hurts me that I can't, you know, share pictures of my kids with them. Can't you just do that, that on a regular absolutely. text message group? Like what do you need WhatsApp for? So we can, but then again, like that's different based upon what country someone lives in. So there are charges in certain countries and not in others. So I, you I know, get it's that. unfortunate, okay. but so yeah, I've dropped WhatsApp altogether. Am I in touch with them less as a result? Yes. Is the quality of our relationship down as a result? Yeah, for sure. I'm a, I'm a busy person. I don't have time to send them separate, you know, emails or, or text them all separately, these photos in the way that they can, you know, th- I'll tell you this, Simi, these apps are phenomenal for convenience. They really are. There's no denying it. But what we've come to see in the pandemic, especially, is that we have to make some sacrifices around convenience. You know, we have Very to true. take hard looks at our individual lives and go, what am I willing to give up in terms of convenience for well, that's a better thing. life? That's and the thing. So I, I do wonder then with all this Facebook talk in the news, if anybody's read anything about the Facebook papers today, has anything changed about how you use social media as a result of all these stories? I think it would be interesting chat to have about that. Raji, thank you. Hey, thanks to me. Yeah, you let me know out there. Are you using it less? Are you wary? Maybe you're like Raji and you finally said, no, I'm done being on one of these apps. Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. What do you know about the disease polio? Well, if you are of a certain age, you remember the fear of it, the fear of getting it, hearing stories about friends or relatives who perhaps had it. But there's an awful lot of people out there of, you know, a later age who only heard stories about it or read about it somewhere in, you know, history books. But there are some similarities between, you know, how highly infectious polio was and perhaps COVID-19. So joining us to talk more about that is Dr. Matthew Chow, president of Doctors of BC. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. I found this is so apropos because yesterday was World Polio Day. Have we really forgotten about how devastating polio was? Well, certainly in North America, I, th- I think most, most of us have. I remember going into medical school and being taught by my professors that, uh, you know, this is a disease that uh, no longer really exists here in the developed world. Um, and, tr- you know, truly this is one of those uh, benefits of modern medicine, of modern public health, that uh, we don't, largely don't have to think about it anymore. So what were you taught in school then? How bad was polio? Well, polio was, was very bad. It is a virus, um, you know, not unlike COVID-19, uh, a virus that could infect human beings. And in this particular case, it had a predilection uh, for younger children, uh, and it caused paralysis in a number of those children. And in the late 40s and early 50s, there was a particularly bad outbreak around the world, and it hit Canada, uh, and many, many children were affected. And there was a vaccine eventually developed for it, and I understand from reading about this that there was some hesitancy from people about taking that vaccine. Yes, absolutely. Um, As terrible as the disease was, um, there were people that were reluctant uh, because, you know, very similar to some of the... um, to some of the concerns expressed by people today, you know, people worried about this uh, new vaccine, new technology, people worried about how it had been developed. Um, and in fact, you know, the development process for this vaccine and the experience uh, from the vaccine for polio 
led to safety improvements that we continue to benefit from in the present day. Right. And we, we managed to do a good job of eradicating polio, didn't we? Yeah. So there are three types of this polio virus, and two out of three of these types are essentially eradicated all around the world. Um, there haven't been cases seen you know, since uh, 1999 and 2012, respectively. There's one type of polio that's still around. It's in Pakistan and Afghanistan, unfortunately, and that's why you'll hear about eradication efforts still underway um, to completely eliminate polio. But otherwise, you know, in, in, in a country like ours, the only cases that have happened here are, have, have been among unvaccinated individuals that might have come in contact with people that brought in polio, imported cases. Right. How different that is, right? So are there similarities between like how polio spread and how COVID-19 spreads, do you think? Yeah, so there is a difference there. So uh, you know, COVID-19 is a respiratory virus, whereas, um, you know, polio is, is spread through the fecal oral route. So there is a difference there, um, but they are both viruses. Uh, they are both vaccine-preventable diseases. And in, in the case of both of these illnesses, the more people are vaccinated, less likely you are to encounter uh, this virus. Right. So again, though, we still see that little, the kind of bit of vaccine hesitancy, even among healthcare workers. Dr. Chow, does that surprise you? Um, you know, it's it's unfortunate. Um, it does not surprise me. However, uh, healthcare workers are people, uh, and you know, people, you know, in, in you know, outside of healthcare, have uh, have, you know, some some folks have concerns. You know, I want to reassure people though that uh, the safety of these vaccines is is, is beyond a doubt. Um, and just like the airline industry, you know, so when when the polio vaccine first came out, you know, in the in the fifties, the airline industry was very different than it was today. Uh, there was less safety. Uh, there was less safety features. There were more accidents. And now, flying is one of the safest experiences that's going. And and and, and you know, having an airline incident uh, is very very rare. And it's the same with vaccines. So when the when the polio vaccine first came out, there were concerns. And 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 indeed, um, there was a particular incident called the Cutter incident um, that that was a concern. But because of things like that over the decades. You know, our vaccine surveillance system, the development process, the safety process has become so, so much better that vaccines these days are incredibly, incredibly safe, just like flying in an airplane. Right. But as you point out, though, not there's still people, no matter what industry they work in, who might still be hesitant. Now, we know that tomorrow is the deadline for healthcare workers, and that includes doctors to be vaccinated. Do you know if how many doctors are vaccinated at this point? So we know at least 97 percent of doctors in British Columbia are vaccinated. So a very, very small number of doctors are unvaccinated. Uh, and, and so this is not going to affect the medical profession as much. There are concerns in other healthcare professions that there could be a greater proportion of people unvaccinated. However, we know from other jurisdictions, such as neighboring Alberta, um, that when push comes to shove and a vaccine mandate comes into place, that far fewer people uh, end up you know, uh, quitting or resigning or, or losing their jobs than initially feared. Uh, in the state of New York, it was very similar, very, very small numbers. And so we're hoping to see a similar situation here in British Columbia. Right. 97% of doctors. That's still a few percent there, though. What will happen to those doctors who are not fully vaccinated? Yeah. So, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, what the, what the mandate is saying is that people cannot uh, offer patient care. They cannot see patients if they're not vaccinated. And it is, you know, it's an unfortunate situation. Um, we never want to have, uh, have have people not working. But at the end of the day, 
uh, COVID-19, especially this Delta variant, is highly transmissible. There have been outbreaks in healthcare facilities traced back to unvaccinated healthcare workers. And so we need extraordinary measures right now during this extraordinary time. Are you a little concerned, though, about that 3%? Because some of them might be, you know, doctors who see patients. Um, of course, I'm concerned. I want us to be at 100%, you know, in terms of vaccination and 100% of us uh, working to our to our full ability. Um, but at the end of the day, we need to protect the public uh, and we need to protect each other from this virus. So when will, you know, some decisions be made? Are you going to wait and see over the next couple of days what, what happens? Yeah, we're so we're yeah we're in a phase right now where we are uh, waiting to see what the impact is going to be. Again, in, in other jurisdictions, the the numbers end up being smaller um, when when those deadlines are faced. Uh, the deadline affects acute care facilities first, so so hospitals essentially and health authority facilities. Uh, and our understanding is that the, uh, the the mandate will also extend into into community practices, though so that deadline has not yet been set. Okay, so there is still some time there. Uh, is, is this an issue that has come up internally in Doctors of BC at all, or do you feel like, you know, most part doctors are on the same page? I'd say most are on the same page. I've received a handful of complaints, and, and I recognize and respect those individuals that have written to me, um, but that's a handful of people in 15,000 members. The vast, vast, vast majority of our members have spoken, you know, they voted with their feet to get the vaccine, and, and many of them actually write me and say that they are frustrated that a vaccine-preventable illness continues to present as much problem as it does and continues to, to pressure our hospital system and our entire healthcare system as it does. And they say, you know what, it's, it's about time to get more people vaccinated so that we can get on with things. All right, Dr. Chow, thank you so much for your time this morning. You're very welcome. That's Dr. Matthew Chow. He's president of Doctors of BC. Couple of different things we were talking about there. One is it was World Polio Day um, yesterday, as a matter of fact, and it was a good opportunity to talk about polio because you've probably you know, read about it in a book somewhere. Uh, if you're of a certain age, you might have known somebody who had it. Maybe you you know heard the stories about that. But thanks to a vaccine, it was pretty much eradicated. The vaccine developed in 1955, but there was some initial resistance to that polio vaccine as well. But my gosh. Look at what a difference it made. Uh, Terry from New West emailed me about that and said, my mom had polio back in the 40s. And my mom, soon to be 82, he said, suffers from post-polio syndrome, lots of pain, heart failure, breaks my heart to watch her suffer, Terry says, but I'm so incredibly proud of how she keeps going. Terry says, anyone who doesn't want the COVID shot, well, what can I say about that? See, Terry, you understand firsthand, you see it, right? How your mother would have probably loved to have had that polio vaccine if she'd had the opportunity, but it wasn't invented until, you know, a good 10 years after that. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about a story that you heard a lot about in the news last week. The VPD, Vancouver Police Department, tweeted out a thread. Got a lot of people talking. It's about how there has been quite an uptick in unprovoked aggression in Vancouver, essentially a higher number of, you know, stranger assaults on people. Our Raji Silhal is with us now to talk more about this. And I, I assume, Raji, look, there's a lot more obviously going on behind the scenes here. 
Yeah, for sure. Simi, we've all been hearing these stories about the broken windows downtown, uh, these weird unprovoked attacks, including like to people that are unknown to the perpetrator, like just total strangers. And then I feel like in the last 18 months, there's been so much I've come across on social media and in the news of like women reporting being followed and they were shooting, um, you know, cell phone video of it. And last week, then VPD sent out this tweet. You mentioned it's a long thread and it's about how uh, there's this uptick in unprovoked attacks on strangers. And a lot of people replied to it. I read all the replies and uh, they said, hey, is this just the VPD trying to bolster more public support for police funding, you know, trying to make the case for why they need more money to fight crime or is like something really going on here. But I see it like I see it anecdotally. You know, when I'm walking the streets of Vancouver these days, I feel like uh, it is different. I don't feel as safe. And then I see the, the news stories and on social media, I'm having conversations with people who are saying the same thing. Well, Brian Kinney's a criminologist at SFU, and he looks at the actual police data very closely. And I asked him, you know, if this VPD tweet was accurate, are the number of assaults up? Total assaultive behavior isn't um, really out of skew for the last couple of uh, years. If you look at the year end uh, for September to uh, from previous years to this year, which is their last data point, uh, we're about the same or a bit down. But that's not to say that in the details, because of course that information doesn't show, you know, whether the nature of the relationship between the the person being assaulted or the uh, the or the vic- uh, or the perpetrator. So I, I would take that at face value. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't suspect that it's a uh, uh, trying to drive you know the social metrics or anything like that. Um, I would I would also think about um, the changing ways that people are are thinking about reporting and how they're probably more confident um, to to actually to announce it and to um, to talk about it and to to share it on uh, share their experiences online uh, in various media or uh, with the police. So when the police have discovered um, what they think might be a trend and that they want to look at it a bit more, um, I, I think that's a combination of, of people being more confident in wanting to say, hey, this isn't acceptable and I'm going to report this. Um, and also the, the fact that the, the police are paying attention to, to these issues. They are paying attention to uh, their own data in a way that maybe they weren't doing as much or as obviously to the public or to researchers uh, as they were in the last couple of years, but they're doing that now. So yeah, that was Brian Kinney, a criminologist at SFU. He's talking about how the VPD is analyzing the data that they get, but he touched on an important issue there, which was the willingness to report and document aggressive behaviors that people either experience themselves or they witness. And this is in part because smartphones are more readily available. You could just quickly whip one out and shoot video of something that's happening. And then we, of course, with social media, we can share that footage ourselves. We don't have to wait for uh, you know a media outlet to do it, a formal media outlet let we have the power to do so ourselves. I personally, you know, about five years ago, I would say I was once pushed by um, a stranger, a male, he came towards me, and I was confused about what was happening. And then he pushed me pushed my shoulders really hard. And I didn't report it. I didn't report it because I didn't think the police could do anything about it. If that happened today, Simi, I definitely would have um, reported it. And so Brian Kinney says that that's a pretty common thing now. 
empowered is not the right word, but it's like uh, a, a, an increased willingness to to say, hey, look, this is happening. And whereas maybe a generation before, people might not have thought that that was, the police couldn't do anything about it. But Simi, we're also seeing um, aggressive behavior, he said, because of COVID, because of the pandemic. He said, in part, people are wearing masks, and so they feel a little bit more free, and that people are acting out, that they uh, the panhandling isn't working without as many people out of the street and this kind of thing. I think people that might be have have normally been maybe interested in panhandling. Uh, maybe the traffic's not the right kind of traffic volume to to sort of make your living, so to speak. Um, there might be people that are put into positions of becoming a bit more aggressive uh, through competition of of scarcer sort of resources. Uh, but that that explains maybe some of the the escalation of, of say, um, property and acquisitive things that are like trying to pay for food or, or shelter or, or substances, et cetera. Uh, but the violent stuff, the unprovoked assaults, like, you know, the, the bow and arrow attacks in Germany, you know, and like these kinds of things uh, are really an angst of some kind that uh, is just unsettling. And it might just be uh, the chaos of the of the of the world, and just sort of people being able to, um, uh, I, I guess, sense that the the times are are are, are shifted and allowing people to uh, to sort of express themselves in ever more um, extreme ways. So I guess, Roger, there's some there's some positive things in there, right? Is that people feel more confident in coming forward to say, hey, this happened to me. But on the downside is that there, it just feels like there's a lot more of this happening. Exactly. Yeah. So he basically said that there isn't an uptick necessarily, but that we are seeing it more because of how much everyone is sharing. Now, you know, people aren't usually calling into the uh, Vancouver Police Department to say, I saw someone looking suspicious on a busy downtown street, right? And that's the kind of thing that I'm saying I am seeing and I'm seeing on social media that other people are are seeing and expressing. I have friends that no longer do their uh, sunrise walks or they no longer walk home from work. But this isn't just females. I know of individual males who have been minding their business in the last 18 months and then been provoked and, and they have a fear of being being jumped to. And, you know, nobody wants to admit this to me, but like drugs are a part of the problem. They're part of the problem in Vancouver. There are a lot of drugs here. And we know that um, a lot of people are mentally unwell and that they need help. Exactly. But at the same time, we this, this doesn't necessarily make us feel any safer when um, those individuals might turn towards some kind of crime. So um, this is a story I would love to keep watching for our show that I could maybe uh, keep an eye on and uh, dig a little bit deeper. I think so too. Yeah, Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. That's our Raji Sohal there talking about the, you know, the fact that Vancouver Police Department say that they have seen a, a worsening and a concerning trend in a number of increased number of stranger kind of attacks on the streets of Vancouver. And that's Raji digging a little deeper into that. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Well, let's get an update now on the ship that you've been hearing about all weekend long. Now, maritime officials say they are seeing progress in their battle against a hazardous fire that's aboard a cargo ship. And this is just off of Victoria. In fact, people um, standing there can actually see it with binoculars, as Von Palmer was telling us earlier. So what do we know about this fire? What happened? What's on board? Joining us now is Global BC reporter Kylie Stanton, who's been covering this f- story for us. Kylie, good morning. Good morning, Simi. What do we know about how this fire started? You know, we actually don't know at this point. Uh, That question was asked in the press conference that was held by the Coast Guard yesterday. And at this point, they can't even get on board to find out. So I think that maybe in the next steps, we should have that information coming in the hopefully the coming days, because they will be getting some firefighters on board, uh, hazmat firefighters, hopefully today, if the weather cooperates. Okay, and so they've had to uh, evacuate people off the ship as well. Is that right? Yeah, Saturday night, late Saturday, 16 uh, crew members were evacuated. They were taken to Ogden Point, which is just um, off the coast of Victoria here. Five remained on board, though, at the request of the master to monitor the situation. They had to have someone or a a crew watching the anchor on Constance Banks, because if it does drift off Constance Bank which is an anchorage, that's where many ships anchor, Uh, the waters around it are incredibly deep and the anchor may not hold. And so that would cause all sorts of problems, again, especially with this weather, having it potentially push the vessel into shore, which uh, would be a much bigger problem. Uh, Yeah, sounds like it. So (laughs) the, the weather situation, how has that played into this? How is that making things, you know, worse at this point? Well, as you know, yesterday we thought it was, you know, we were having this bomb cyclone and it hasn't quite uh, materialized that way. Uh, it's been windy, but um, not not as what was projected. So um, it was anchored on Constance Bank. I can actually see the vessel from my house. Uh, like Vaughn mentioned earlier, you can see it from pretty much anywhere um, on the coast of Greater Victoria here. Um, it has drifted from the eight kilometers uh, off the coast that it was originally anchored at to uh, yesterday it was about 12 kilometers off the coast. So it has drifted, but it's still anchored and it appears to still be there. Uh, the firefighting efforts uh, dousing the hull to cool it down, that seems to have stopped from what I can see. Um, and uh, like, like the Coast Guard said yesterday, uh, the fire seems to be coming under control. Right. And they lost some containers too. Is that right? Well, they lost 40 containers in listing seas. That was on Friday. Um, two of those containers contained hazardous material. It was like a, an agent used in mining. Uh, so they were concerned about that. Um, those containers are being carefully tracked. The U.S. Coast Guard is working on that. Um, and they're making mariners in the area aware of where those hazards might be. Right now, uh, last we heard, they were off the coast of Bamfield, which is um, sort of north uh, Vancouver Island, um, north of Tofino. Right. Uh, Now, how challenging has fighting the fire been? I mean, that can't have been easy. Well, yeah, it's actually interesting. You can't fight this fire with water because of the chemicals involved. So they were really just hoping to cool down the hull with all the water you saw being sprayed on it yesterday um, because you can't throw water on the chemicals themselves. They just wanted those to burn out. And they're not sure if it has, but it has come down quite quite a bit. And they're not going to be sure until this hazmat firefighting team is able to get on board, go container by container, sea can by sea can, to make sure that it is in fact out. Um, they weren't even able to tell us yesterday how much the fire had spread, how many containers had been lost, because 
without being on board, it's really difficult to kind of get a sense of that. Right. So, yeah, that's what they were hoping is that it just burns out. But it was interesting. I was talking to Adam Coolidge yesterday. He was with Cold Water Marine Rescue out of Sydney here in, uh, in Victoria. Um, and he was saying that fire on board a vessel like this is a worst case scenario because you have to really throw water on it, but be careful not to throw too much water on it to destabilize the vessel. So it's really a balancing act in terms of trying to figure out how much is too much uh, and are you able to pump it out afterwards. How many different, you know, departments and organizations are working on this right now? Well, yeah, it's a multi-agency response for sure. There's an incident command post led by the Canadian Coast Guard involving both provincial and federal government that are working on this. And they're including all First Nations as well uh, to manage the situation because I believe there's about 14 uh, that would be affected along the coast. So they are trying their best. Um, They said yesterday in the Zoom press conference, they're trying to reach all of them and, and have their input as well. Okay, so Kylie, what do we expect to see today? What's going to happen? Well, we've been told the owner is cooperating, the owner of the MV, um, the, the MVs in Kin- Kingston is cooperating. Uh, he has hired Resolve Marine Group to deal with this, um, and it's a massive group out, out of Florida, I believe, that will come aboard. They, they've hired the two ships to work with the water. So far, we're not seeing that anymore. Um, the hazmat crew is expected to be able to board the ship. They said, hopefully today, we, we will hopefully find out if they're able to. And like I said, they'll go container by container to ensure the fire is under control, put out any hot spots, report back. And ideally, if everything is secure and stabilized, they'll be able to tow the vessel to its destined port in Vancouver. All right, fingers crossed it goes just like that. Uh, Kylie, <laughs> thank you very much for your time this morning. No worries to me. Thank you.